Uh, man, well, it's great to see all of you. Um, if you're new to Door of Hope, welcome. My name is Josh. We're so glad that you're here. We are uh, slowly moving through the book of Romans. And Romans is not a book that one should speed through. Um, it requires a tremendous amount of, of, of focus and thought and careful examination. And honestly, teaching through it, this is the fourth time I've taught through it. I feel like every time I teach through it, it's like a new experience all over again. There's just so much in it and so much beauty in it. And we're in the middle of the three chapters that are often considered to be the most confusing. Uh, a lot of people um, struggle with knowing how to interpret them, how to place them in the proper context of the rest of the letter. And that's uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11, which where Paul shifts gears from from his kind of theological unfolding of what the gospel actually is to what about Israel and God's covenantal promises with Israel. For those Jewish Christians that were a part of the Roman church were asking the question, with the coming of Jesus and righteousness being granted by faith alone, what then about the law? What then about God's covenantal promises? Is, have the, have the Jew, with the Jews' rejection of the Messiah, does that mean that God has rejected his covenantal promises with them? And Paul gives a resounding no. But I think it's important for us when we read through 9, 10, 11 that we don't lose ourselves uh, in the weeds of sort of questions around Israel as a nation and that we see that all of Scripture is profitable and regardless of who it's primarily directed to, it speaks to kind of universal truths about all of us. As we even considered last week, Israel's problems are our problems. Our tendency to take our faith in God and turn it into the things that we do rather than the one that we know is the same issue that Israel had as it gave up the creator God and gave all their worship to the law that God gave them as a means of helping them enter into intimacy with himself. We do the same in our Christian faith. We take the things that we do as Christians and that becomes our religious practice. That becomes our identity rather than Jesus himself. And I think that as we move into chapter 10, what we'll see again and again is actually one of the most important things that we need to understand as Christians. And that is, as Luther said, the most important thing for a preacher to be able to do is to distinguish between law and gospel. And I think that Paul is going to continue to dig into that. He is consistent from the beginning of the letter to the end. And today we are going to be considering um, just really four principles that I think we can find in the first seven verses of chapter 10. Beginning with this, love is the foundation of discipleship. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, let me just say that Paul is talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters, but he also is talking about the very people that probably created the most conflict in his later life. After his conversion, it was the Jews that became determined to bring him down, actually to have him executed. 
as an apostate of the Jewish faith. And he was a man that was seen as a disruptor. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was chased out of towns. He was a hated man by the Jewish people. And yet Paul never for a second lost his devotion to these people. In fact, what I see again and again in Paul is the demonstration of what the Christian life actually is, which is the only tangible evidence that you and I are born again. It's not based upon, you know, the things that we do or the things that we don't do. It is really fundamentally built upon how well do we represent the supernatural gift of God's love poured out in our hearts through our faith in Jesus. In fact, I think again and again we can go back to Romans 5.5. 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This love, this agape love, this grace, God's one-way love, if I can borrow from Paul Zoll, it is a love that comes to us not because we deserve it. It is a love that comes to us because it is God's nature to love the unlovable, which is you and I. And the more we understand how fundamentally broken we are, the more we understand how lost we are without God's grace, the more patient and compassionate we will be toward others. A lack of patience, a lack of care and concern for others is actually a revelation of our own lack of understanding of what it is we've actually been saved from. And I think that Paul here gives us a picture of what discipleship actually looks like when it's played out in real time. That discipleship is not defined by how often you read your Bible, by how often you pray, by how much you tithe, by how, how well you are when it comes to attendance of church or the little ways that you serve within the community. Those things are all important, but if they do not fundamentally come from the foundation of I am loved, and I now have the capacity to love, then there is a problem with our idea of discipleship. I think that 2 Thessalonians 3.5 kind of defines this well for us. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now we live in a time and in a particular climate in which it is easy to become consistently frustrated with the world around us. We can become disturbed and upset by the amount, the, the rise in crime in our city or the rise in drug use or political leanings, wherever you come from, whatever spectrum. That's why I say it is best as Christians to be apolitical. Our allegiance first and foremost is to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. And the kingdom of God, we need to remember Jesus is not a capitalist, he's not a Republican, he's not a, he's not a Democrat, he's not a socialist, he's a dictator. He just happens to be a good one. <laughs> but we are told that there will be a day when every knee will bow and they will recognize that Jesus is Lord. And his lordship has to be played out in how we function as people in this world. We have to learn to become the Christian's that we are. <laughs> because I think that that is one of the great challenges is it's one thing to be born again, to be regenerated. It's another thing to learn how, how to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And 
working out that salvation is, is a working out of that agape love, the love that God has poured out in our hearts, that we as broken people that are by nature mixture have now the capacity to do something that we did not have the capacity to do before. And the more we understand how sinful we are, the more compassion and grace we will be able to maintain for those that we come in contact with, especially those that we are in disagreement with, especially those that we struggle with. And I know as we come into the Christmas season, honestly, for many of us, the hardest people you deal with is your own family. Isn't it funny that, you know, Christmas for a lot of people is a lot of heartache. They don't want to be around family. There's conflict because it's often the people that you spend the most time with that know you the best and you know the best that you know how broken people fundamentally are. Because as Mary Carr brilliantly stated, and I love to state all the time, a dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person. And, and, and I think that that's true in the church, too. And like our families, we don't get to pick our families, and we don't get to pick who's in the church. What we are called to be is a people that understand, I am fundamentally broken and lost without Jesus, which gives me the capacity to tread lightly when it comes to my brother and sister. It's, it's Eugene Peterson's beautiful statement that has kind of guided me as a pastor. If we remember that people are sinners, you won't be surprised when they sin. And I think that is a very helpful statement. And this isn't about doing nothing. This isn't about just accepting everyone's broken and sinful and we don't, there's no transformation. I'm saying that there's no sustained transformation without it flowing from a foundation of love. Love is the only thing that actually will inspire growth that actually lasts. I always say that disciplining ourselves in anything requires that we love the thing that we're giving ourselves to. I discipline myself to play guitar because I love music. That was the only thing that helped me get through the, the pain of getting blisters on the ends of my fingers. It was that I knew I would eventually be able to play a song, and that was worth it. But if we don't understand why we're doing the thing we, we do, we will surrender it. It, will not, it won't be sustainable in our lives. And we're not called to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We are called to be a people that know that we are loved, that on your worst day Jesus is crazy about you, and that if that's true of you, that must be true of your neighbor. And your neighbor is whoever is in front of you, behind you, or next to you at any given moment in the day. Jesus said to his disciples, you, being wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those that ask? And I like to say that there are only two categories of people for Jesus. Wicked people that say yes to him and wicked people that have said no to him. And the question is, is do we understand that? We are not better than anyone else. And if we don't understand that, we would never be able to say what Paul is saying here. Because... Often I have met, and it's a sad thing, it's terrifying to me when I meet Christians that actually seem to be excited about people going to hell. What a, what a horrific concept that does not derive itself from the heart of God. Jesus, even think of the young rich ruler, it says he looked at him and he loved him. And he shared a hard word with him. And the young rich ruler walked away. And yes, Jesus did not enforce himself upon him. He let him walk away disappointed. But he loved him. He loved him. 
I like what A.W. Tozer said. He goes, it is possible, um, it is it is possible to die unsaved, but it is impossible to die unloved. And this is a beautiful truth that must be at the forefront of who we are as Christians. In 1 John 3.17 says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Which tells us that our ability to say, this is one of the things that frustrates me immensely with the the, the current political climate in a progressive city like Portland, especially around uh, the issue of homeless camps. A lot of this is being presented, a lot of the politics around this uh, from, from the position of the left is we are being compassionate. We are being compassionate because we are basically saying that these people have the right to set up camps wherever they want because we want them, we don't want them, you know, not undercovering in a place that rains all the time. We want them to have this, this freedom to basically, they have the right to have a home, and if the only home they can have is a tent, then we should let them set up tents. The problem is, is that most of the people that say that don't want the tents in their yard. And, and if, if that is the way that we can relieve ourselves of the guilt that we feel at the fact that we don't actually engage in these people's lives, then there's a problem with the political foundation by which, it's, by which the standard is now being set because we're not helping people by not entering into their lives with them. You know, one thing I love about Door of Hope is that Door of Hope has always been a place that's been deeply connected to things like Portland Rescue Mission, Union Gospel Mission, City Team, uh, uh, Teen Challenge, all of these organizations that help people get off the street, help people get off of drugs. There's many here today that come out of these programs or, or in these programs, and we want every person that comes in the store, if it's someone that lives on the street, if it's someone that's in a program, if it's someone that lives in a house, we don't care. We want you to know that you are loved by Jesus and maintain the dignity of one who is made in the image of God and must be treated as such. To be a part of this family, that is what we are committed to. Every person that comes in these doors, we want to, them to feel loved and to know that God sees them and knows them. And how can they see, how can they know that God sees them if they aren't even seen by God's people? And I think this is an important question for us to ask. And that's why I think that a lot of these things are smoke screens where we're not actually helping people. We're just ridding ourselves of the guilty conscience that these people are broken and need much more than just the ability to throw up a tent. Because what we see is an uptick in drug addiction, an uptick. And I was talking with my friend Brian last night, who's a, a doctor. It's an increased amount of deaths from drug overdoses. I mean, we just hit the world record. Uh, for our nation, uh, I mean, our, the, rec the highest record of mortality, um, deaths from opiates ever in the history of the United States in 2021. That says something is fundamentally wrong with our culture, and it has to do not just with these people that make bad decisions, it has to do with a, a culture that is, derives its meaning from self-focus and self-absorption that the most important thing in the universe is you. And we as a church have to stand fundamentally opposed to that idea to recognize that my fulfillment is found in my ability to lay down my life for you because that is what Jesus has done for me. It's a simple principle, but it's one that must be stated again and again because it's so counterintuitive to how we live. I love this idea 
that it says in Matthew 9, 38, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That the, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I'm telling you right now, the lack of laborers flows from a lack of love. And I think we have to come to this place where we recognize this is something we should be praying for. We should be praying that God would break our hearts for the things that break his. And it is possible for our hearts to be broken if we don't know that we are loved and that the people that are around us are loved. God can do much with a broken heart. He can do nothing with a divided heart. So the first principle is love is the foundation of discipleship. And I think that people will define discipleship by a lot of things and often love is not a word utilized to describe what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The disciple of Jesus is one who has surrendered all to follow him, but they follow him because they have been loved by him, called by him, regenerated by him, filled with him in his spirit, which now gives them the capacity to go where he goes. And the thing is, is the places that Jesus wants to take us are not generally places that we would choose for ourselves. Secondly, knowing is the source of authenticity. Romans 10, 2 Paul says, listen, my heart's desire is that the Jewish people would be saved, that they would come to a saving understanding of who Jesus is. But he says, for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God. He said, listen, they are zealous about their faith, about their religion, but not according to knowledge. Now, knowledge, when we talk about knowledge from a Christian perspective, or I would say from a New Testament theological grid, knowledge is relational knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, Paul says, but love builds up. Jesus says that the essence of eternal life in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've been hitting on this a lot because I think one of the most important questions that we can ask is, do we actually know Jesus? Because Jesus says, my sheep know me, they hear my voice, and they follow me. What does he say to Philip? Have I been with you so long, Philip, and still you do not know me? Many will come to me with lots of zeal, Lord, we did this and this in your name. And he will say, away from me, I never knew you. I think it's interesting when you, when you connect that with the parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, those that knew him were those that went out and loved others. For when you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. So see how the, the first principle connects directly with the second principle. Our ability to love flows out of the intimate knowledge that we have of the one who first loved us. We love him only because he loved us first. We love others the way that we are supposed to only because he loved us first. I, I think that this is a, a powerful picture because I think this tells us that our sincerity will not save us. It tells us that zeal and zeal, you think of that as like intensity of, of activity, passionate about doing the right thing. But if the right thing doesn't have the right foundation, it's problematic. This is why we're told that many will come to me and their works will be tested by fire. 
And he says that there, and it says that there will be like straw and hay that burns up. It says their souls will be saved, but as barely as one escaping the flames. Which tells me that there is a lot that we do as Christians that has very little to do with the gospel. And that's a terrifying thing. I'm grateful to see that God's mercy is greater than my failure. But, but it, nonetheless, I'm not one who wants to enter into the kingdom of God be confronted with Jesus, have my works tested by fire, and be one that enters in smelling like smoke. Um, and this is the reality, that because the only works that actually we will be rewarded for are the works that God himself did through us as we surrendered to him. Knowing is the source of our authenticity. I always say that knowing is the goal, not arriving. And we tend to put a tremendous amount of emphasis upon the idea of arriving, that we have a goal. I'm trying to get, <laughs> I, uh, this is a arrival for me, and I'm realizing that there will be no arrival when I arrive at the end of this book. So right now I'm in book club and we're reading Ulysses. And Ulysses by James Joyce, lots of questions around whether or not it can truly be called the greatest novel of the 20th century. And we in the book club, we're beginning to believe that the only reason it's called the greatest novel of the 20th century is because no one's actually read it. And that those who have read it probably didn't understand it because Joyce wrote a book to show the world that he was smarter than everyone. There's no doubt about that. And I made it 500 pages before in like 2012, or no, 2014, and then I just gave up because it just made me feel dumb. So now I'm doing it with three people that are really smart and, and all we're talking about is how dumb the book makes us feel. I'm like, why are we reading again? in? Because we're going to arrive at the end. And then we're going to realize that there was no arrival because none of us remember anything that we read. And we don't know why we spent hours, like 65 plus hours, reading through this dense book that is so... The last 100 pages has no punctuation or space between the words. That's insane. <laughs> we haven't got to that part yet. And I'm, I'm just going to, I don't know, I'm going to just get the audio tape and listen to it while I sleep. Because it'll be, that's how effective it'll be for me. It'll have the same impact. Um, but I think that this, is, this idea, I mean, that's a silly example. But the fact is, is that often we have these ideas, if I get to this point, I will have arrived. If I could know this, then I will... I will meet it if I can get to this point. But that's not the, the goal of the Christian life is not a rival. The goal of the Christian life is knowing. And I, and I think that really the greatest goal of human existence is to know and be known. The deepest desire of the human heart, regardless of what you believe about God, is to be known and loved and to actually have someone to know and to love. You guys ever read that book, um, uh, The Road? Hey, you know, I... I love, um, I, I love that book, not, not as much as I like uh, many of the other books. Blood Meridian is my favorite by the author. But The Road does portray a really powerful picture. A, catastro a, a catastrophe has happened that's knocked out most of the population in the world. There's a father and a son, and they're traveling through this kind of post-apocalyptic landscape where the last remaining humans, are, most of them are dangerous, and they're cannibalistic, and this father and son are, are, are surviving in this brutal environment, and the father, uh, 
they've lost, he's lost his wife, the son's lost his mom, she's committed suicide. And the whole question is, is why, would, why, would we even, why would we even want to exist if this is all that the world has to offer? But I think the point of the book is a powerful one. And that is that as long as there is one person in this world to love, life is worth living. It shows me one of the great fundamental facts of human existence, that it is not good that man be alone. And I think that this is a powerful picture for us because we have to understand that, that the deepest desire of the human heart is to, is to be known in the, in the capacity to know. And that is the highest goal of existence. But we put, we put so much emphasis upon things that don't have eternal significance. Achievements that we think will satisfy us, but that's not what's going to satisfy us. I think that this is an important aspect for, as Jesus himself um, said in John 14, 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Why? Because we know him. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Third, surrender is the key to righteousness. In Romans 10.3, Paul goes on to say, um, speaking of these same Religious Jews, they have a zeal for God, but they lack understanding. They don't know the God that they have zeal for. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. In other words, by keeping Torah, by keeping the law, they have come to the conclusion that that is what will make them right with God. Seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And what Paul has spent this entire letter establishing is that that righteousness from the beginning of Scripture to the end is achieved by faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That faith in God is not the belief that God exists. Faith in Jesus is not just the belief that he exists. Faith in Jesus is a total disposition of trust toward Christ that gives Christ the right to be himself in and through our lives. In other words, it is a total surrender. Faith and surrender cannot be separated. Saving faith is a faith that allows Jesus the right to be Lord in and through our lives. In other words, the demons believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They are the first ones to actually identify his true nature. But they are not participants in his salvation. Because they are not trusting in him. They just simply believe that he is who he says he is. That is not saving faith. It is not enough to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not even enough to believe that Jesus died for your sins. It requires a full surrender of one's life. By which you say, Jesus, not my will be done, but your will be done. It is a commitment to him and his guidance and his direction. It is the re-evaluating of existence under the lens of regeneration. I have been born again, been given the spirit of God so that now I can walk with God. And I think that this is the invitation in scripture as God invites us to walk with him. Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. 
but I will send to you another helper, the spirit of truth. And when he comes, he will not only be with you, but he will be in you. And he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And I think that this is a powerful uh, proclamation that tells us that the Christian life is a mystical experience, but it's not mysticism in, in, uh, in kind of our traditional sense of the, the mystic of the person who is separated from the world and having these crazy, almost psychedelic experiences with the living God that has nothing to do with the rest of humanity. No, the kind of mysticism that I think is a, is a, is a biblical or Christian mysticism is a is a practical mysticism that helps us recognize God's presence as we enter into his world with him by the power of his spirit. It's the ability to see the divine fingerprints upon life itself. It's the ability to see the person in front of you as one who is made in the image of God, one who is an object of God's affection. That is that practical mystery. It's the belief that Every place is a thin place, a place where God's presence can be felt. The problem isn't, is God here? The problem is, is we have not attuned our hearts and minds to his presence. This is why Tozer in his beautiful book, The Pursuit of God, says that God is perpetually speaking into his existence. The problem is, is that we have not attuned the, the, our, our hearing to hear his voice, that still soft voice, that we have not focus the gaze of our souls upon a saving God, which is what Tozer says faith is. Uh, I, I think this is a, a powerful picture for surrender is the key to righteousness. Revelations 3.17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, Paul says, listen, you think that you're okay because of what you do and you don't even realize that you're absolutely lost because you have never actually surrendered, trusted in Christ to be the source of your salvation. God does the saving from start to finish. Our part is we did the sinning and we do the repenting. Lord Jesus, save me, a wretch. And the power of the gospel is this, is that we understand that our efforts are not what make us effective. It's Christ's work in us. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Finally, Christ is the end of the law. In Romans 10, verses 4 through 7, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, I came to fulfill them. That he is the fulfillment of the very law that we could not keep. That he is the righteous in our place. That he is the elect one. He is the one who is chosen and all that are in him are chosen. And I think that this powerful reality of the gospel is something that we need to understand. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. There is no ladder to climb. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And Paul says, listen, it's not by you sinning more to achieve something that you can't achieve or, or by climbing a ladder to the highest heights of, of human perfection. None of those things can actually save you. Jesus has already come 
it is finished, is what Paul is saying. Righteousness comes by faith in Christ alone. Jesus is the final word of the Father. For God at various times and various ways has spoken to us through the prophets and through the scriptures. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in and through his son. This is the beauty of the gospel and what Paul is pushing these, these, this church, these Jewish Christians toward is, listen, everything that needs to be done has been done in Christ. And it is when you understand that, that you will actually begin to be free to do what is right. Not do what you want. The freedom that the gospel actually creates for our lives. The freedom that comes when we know that Jesus is the end of the law. And that everything in our lives is built around our desire to create law out of everything. We are the masters of ladders. We think we will be better when we get to this point or we do this thing or achieve this thing. There is something fundamentally in the human heart that never is satisfied with where it's at. And it is until we find that our satisfaction is found in Christ alone will we be able to actually enter into the things of this world without those things controlling us and destroying us. I always say that the world is something that you should not take very seriously. But you should take Jesus really seriously. You should take loving others really seriously. And I think when we stop taking the world seriously, we actually have the ability to enjoy the world for what it is, mixture, like everything else. And I think that often we take all these other things seriously, but we're not taking Jesus seriously enough. And we think, you know what, I've got time. And eventually I'm going to get really serious about my faith. I, that's how I was in my 20s. I, when, I, when I wasn't a believer, I, I always thought that, you know, some kind of spiritual foundation is, is an inevitability for me. I just... It's, it consumes my, the back of my thoughts. So it was just like, there has to be a God. I want to know him. How can I be right? But you know what? Right now, I just want to be famous. And so I'll think about that later because I'm young. I don't have to think about that right now. And I think that this often is our reasoning for putting off till tomorrow what should have been done yesterday. For we are told again and again in Scripture, today is the day of salvation. And I think that this is the power of the gospel is, is it comes down to these four principles. That love is our foundation. That, that knowing is, is the mark of our authenticity. That surrender is the key to our righteousness. Not getting things right. It's trusting in the only one who is right. And that Christ himself is the end of the law. There is no ladders for us to climb. Jesus is the ladder. And he has come down and met us in our brokenness. And when we begin to recognize that, that is where the real freedom comes. And that is where we now have the ability to live in a way that we had not lived before. And I think that this is where God is trying to take our church right now. Is he wants to bring freedom. It says, do not use your freedom... For the purpose of serving the flesh. For the moment you go back to using your freedom to serving the flesh, you become a slave once again to the flesh. It's kind of the catch-22, isn't it? No, the freedom that we have been set free to enjoy is the freedom to know and be known. The freedom to no longer be held down by guilt and shame. Because 
all sin, past, present, and future, has been forgiven. It's the freedom to know that in spite of our mixture, Jesus still wants to work in and through us. And the fact is, is that he knows that you're a bundle of mixture. He knows that you suck, and it's okay. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The disciples were horrible, kind of, they were sort of not very good people. I mean, kind of charming sometimes, but they seemed to be, you're like, there's no way they were that dumb. And then you're like, no, they were. And then the Lord's like, and, and yet, Josh, they are smarter than you. And I'm like, good point, Lord, good point. This is the beauty of the God. They, they didn't get it. They never understood anything he was trying to achieve. And yet he loved him, loved them. He gave himself to them. Peter denies Jesus three times. But even his denial of Jesus became the very source of Jesus showing Peter, nothing can stop me from loving you, Peter. You know, one of the most powerful scenes in the entire Bible, I think, is the, is the scene where we're, we're told that once Peter denied Jesus for the third time, he looks across the courtyard and he catches the eyes of Jesus. They stare into each other's eyes. And it doesn't say what kind of look Jesus looked at Peter with, but all we know is that Peter immediately began to weep bitterly. And unlike the weeping of Judas, which was a, which was a, a bitterness that caused him, instead of going to Jesus, to run away from Jesus, ultimately taking his life, Peter's weeping led him to the foot of the resurrected Christ. And in that moment, I believe what Peter saw was not Jesus saying, I told you so, Peter. I told you you were going to deny me. Because you remember what he said immediately after he said, three times you will deny me. He said immediately afterwards, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And I believe in that courtyard, what Peter saw was the eyes of one who said, it's okay, Peter. This is the whole reason I came. I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm dying for you. And it's in that that Peter's heart was broken by what? God's love for him. And it was his heart being broken by God's love for him. And even still, he still kept trying to make a mess of it. Even after Jesus was resurrected, even after he had seen him, he still was doubting what he was experiencing. And he goes back to trying to fish, tries to go back to his old life. And Jesus shows up again and says, cast your net on this side of the boat, and he pulls in this huge catch, and Peter realizes that it's the Lord. He jumps out of the boat, and he runs to him. And then Jesus is forced to ask Peter three times at the end of John chapter 20 when he says, he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Of course, Lord, you know that I love you. Lead my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And it says on the third time he was wounded by the fact that Jesus was asking him again. A reversal of the denial by three times pulling from the lips of Peter, I love you, I love you, I love you. Why? Because he first loved him. Jesus loved him first. And Jesus pursued Peter. He never released Peter. He, he pursued him in love, and it was ultimately love that brought out of Peter the man that he could be. And even then, even after Pentecost, he still made a mess of things. Remember what Paul said in Galatians? I had to stand up to Peter to his face for he played the hypocrite. Do you say that about the Pope? <laughs> 
And the fact is, is that that is a beautiful picture of the fact that even still, loved, empowered, used mightily, we still are mixture. And that's why Christ is the end of the law, and that is why it is such good news. Because if we're saved by what we do, rather than who we know and what he has done for us, then we are in trouble, friends. The gospel is good news. And we need to be set free by it, free to do what is right, which is daily surrender to the love of a God who on your worst day loves you fiercely. And his love is an inexorable love. It's unstoppable. And it will burn away everything in us that is unlovely until only that which is lovable remains. There is no arrival, friends, because eternity will be perpetual growth and discovery afresh. If anyone be in Christ, all things are new. I think that that is a perpetual statement that we will never come to an end of discovering. What a powerful reality and what a powerful promise we have in the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you for its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And we do pray that our discipleship would be driven by an understanding that we are loved and that by your spirit we are given the capacity to love. I pray, Lord, that our zeal for you would flow out of the fact that we know you and are known by you. Lord, we want to be a people that live in the righteousness that is ours because of what you have done for us. And so, Lord, we want to surrender to you and we declare that you are Lord. And Lord, like Peter, we want to confess that we love you only because you first loved us. And we want to confess, Lord, that we often forget that you are the end of the law and we create little lists for ourselves to make ourselves feel better about the lives that we live. But Lord, I thank you that all that needs to be done has been done by you, through you, through your life and death. And it has been done for us. And Lord, why would you care about us? This is the mystery. But the fact remains that you do. We don't understand why you want to spend eternity with us, but we know that you are not content to do it without us. And so we trust in you. And we ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we misrepresent you in the ways that we forget that you are truly the king of all. We need you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen.